Coming up next on the Wet Fly Swing Podcast. I think it's important to to think about doing something that you absolutely love. The reason I say that is, I mean, I have all this education and training. Like I said, I have a PhD in clinical psychology, and I like that work. Make no mistake, there's nothing wrong with that. I, I don't dislike it at all. But the work I do with running my business and feeling like I'm doing something that is good for our community you know, focusing on water and conservation and, and hopefully protection of these resources. I love that stuff. That was Darren Calhoun giving us a taste of his focus in his business and in the canyon. Water, fish, and conservation today on The Swing. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Hey, how's it going today? Thanks for stopping by the show. If you get a chance, uh, I would love if you can share an episode, maybe this one or one from the past that you've enjoyed. This uh, is the best way that we've been able to grow this show over the time and reach new anglers out there. So if you get a chance, please click that button a little down the uh, probably the bottom of your app and click that share button. Really easy to do. Send an email out to somebody, maybe a text. Get a link out and show the love. Thanks in advance if you've uh, had a chance to share. Today's episode is sponsored by Dalton at uh, Country Financial, who thrives on helping families and community members through the power of education and proper insurance coverage. The unexpected will happen, so it's always best to make sure your assets in life are protected. You can check out Dalton right now at wetflyswing.com slash country and make sure you are protected today. Today's episode is sponsored by Drifthook, who has Pre-packed fly assortments for every stage of your fly fishing journey. Each kit is organized by species and includes instructional videos, easy-to-follow guides. Their fly shop quality flies are hand-tied and inspected before being packed in these careful, durable packs. And I can tell you these are sweet little fly boxes. Check them out right now. Uh, Drifthook, wetflyswing.com slash D-R-I-F-T-H-O-O-K. Drifthook. Darren Calhoun is here to share the story of creating the movie Tribal Waters. We find out how the Wind River Reservation and some other groups out there actually sued the federal government and uh, and actually won the case to protect their water rights. This is a uh, Tribal Waters was uh, uh, helped produce. uh, This is mainly Darren producing, but uh, Patagonia was involved in this. And so we get the whole story there, Roy. Really crazy and cool story. We also find out about um, fishing the Wind River Canyon and what makes this part of the country so unique. This is a pretty huge episode, so I hope you get a chance to connect with Darren down the line and show your support for all the good stuff they have going on. And I'm excited to jump into this one. So without further ado, let's do it. Here we go. Darren Calhoun from WindRiverCanyon.com. How's it going, Darren? Good, Dave. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for coming on today. I think we've got uh, some pretty important topics to talk about today. There's a you've got this amazing program out in the Wind River. We're going to dig into, and also the film Tribal Waters. You've made a connection with Patagonia, and that's a great film talking about some, you know, maybe the most important issues in the world. Really, you know what I mean? Like it comes down to, you know, what's bigger than water, you know, and and just everything. So you've got an interesting uh, background. We're going to dig into all that. And talk about kind of where you, uh, where how you got the guiding program going. But take us back to fishing really quick. How did you first get into fly fishing? Then we'll take it into everything else. So it's interesting because I grew up on a ranch on the Wind River Reservation, and 
I learned how to fish from one of my uncles, one of my mom's brothers, you know, like most of us did with a, with a worm and a, and a little bait hook. And a few years later, and I was probably literally five or six years old when that happened, right? And a few years later, a, a ranch across the road from the ranch I grew up on sold to a individual who was not a tribal member. And when he moved in, him and his wife, his father was there and we got to know them. They were our new neighbors. And um, it was interesting because this gentleman's name was Brad Eastman. His father was Gordon Eastman, who back in the 60s and 70s used to make wildlife films. He was from Jackson Hole. And I got to know Brad and his father, Gordon. And Gordon was a fly fisherman. I mean, so was Brad. But Gordon, Brad's father, taught me how to fly fish. And I recall thinking, you know, why are we turning all these fish loose? I was... You know, when I was a kid, I would catch a fish and keep it and take it home. And my mom would show me how to cook fish. And we ate fresh trout whenever I would catch a couple. And when I started fly fishing with Gordon, I was like, why would we turn these fish loose? We just <laughs> we just spent all this time catching them. I, I remember at one point he said, look, Darren, you have to remember this. Fly fishing is not about catching fish. It's about fooling them. Hmm. Now, I was eight. <laughs> So that lesson was lost on me, right? I was like, yeah, but we're still turning them loose. <laughs> so that's who I learned how to fly fish from. And I, I tell people that story a lot because it's been an interesting process to have a guiding program on the reservation that is fly fishing based because our tribes historically are not necessarily fishermen. It's not that we never fished or used fish in our diets, but we certainly weren't recreational fishermen, if that makes sense. Yeah. Fisher people to be you know, gender neutral. And so getting folks to become guides is difficult when you don't have an established fishing community, let alone a fly fishing community. Now, there are some folks on the reservation who, number one, who fish and who enjoy to fish. A lot of them are sustenance fishermen, which is totally understandable. But there's even a fewer number of folks who are not only interested, but actually fly fish. So it makes it difficult to hire tribal members as guides if you don't have a population of people who are fly anglers. Again, that's not to say there aren't any, but there are a very small number. Yeah, that's right. If we have time, we might get into more of that as we go. And maybe the, the film, you know, discusses that. But there is that challenge. Like in any society, you know, if there's struggles out there, if you're struggling to put food on the table or whatever for the kids, you know, fly fishing, catch and release isn't a priority, right? Exactly. That's the challenge. And, that, and you have, I mean, I've heard stats. I don't even know exactly how much is truth, but you hear these stats about on the reservations, how the levels of poverty and all this stuff are way out proportion to the normal society. Do you guys see, is that pretty much the way it is where you guys are at? Yeah. I mean, we have a high rate of unemployment, you know, it ranges. You hear, you hear different statistics thrown around the latest, you know, that I've heard in particular at Wind River is high 70% unemployment right. rate, particularly for, for men. Men have a higher unemployment rate than women. A lot of the jobs within the tribe or the Indian Health Service or the Bureau of Indian Affairs are typically filled by females. Not always, but a lot of them are, a lot of the secretarial and those sorts of positions. But the last few years, the two tribes each independently own and operate their own casinos. And the Wind River Casino, which is the larger of the two, which is owned and operated by the Northern Arapaho tribe, is now the largest employer on the reservation. And I haven't seen a breakdown of the data, but just walking around in the casino from time to time, it, it's probably still, there probably are, more of those jobs are still probably filled by females and males, but but that's starting to change a bit. To me, the more exciting thing is, I mean, I, I think that's great, but the more exciting thing is we're starting to see more and more tribal members 
go to post-secondary school, associates, bachelors, masters, you know, PhD and professional degrees, uh, JD, PhD, MD, those are starting to show up. The numbers are still small, but they're a lot improved over what they've been historically. Yeah, that's great to hear. I'm not sure what the, the secret is or the solution, right? I mean, do you see that? Do you see what is the change just um, people just kind of having more mentors, you know, role models, that sort of thing? Why are you seeing more of the PhDs? Well, I think there are, are certainly more mentors. I don't know how many folks there are from Wind River who have a PhD. I have a PhD in clinical psychology. I know there are a handful of others, but I also know that, again, post-secondary and graduate education numbers are rising. I think a lot of it has to do with availability of resources. There are funds available and programs to, to be supportive throughout. For example, I went to the University of Montana on a fellowship that was uh, put together through the Western Interstate Compact of Higher Education, WICHI, and it was designed to train a doctoral-level person in clinical psychology who was an American Indian. So the fellowship had you know, funding for five years, which was great. The idea was to create a an individual who would become a faculty member somewhere who was an American Indian. And it worked out great. I had the funding throughout school. Then to work on my dissertation, I was able to secure a grant from the National Institutes of Health. Amazing. The numbers of folks who are interested has grown and is now taking advantage of the opportunities that are there. And honestly, tribes as a whole, collectively across the nation, are doing better than they've done in the past, both financially, opportunities to to engage in businesses and, you know, casino gaming and resource development has, has all improved for tribes. That's great. So I, I think there's a lot of reasons that you're starting to see more folks come out of post-secondary school and professional schools. That's great to hear. Yeah, I think it's, uh, yeah, and I don't want to belabor the point and go deep on this for the whole episode, but I think it is pretty powerful because, you know, part of it is probably, you know, just the government, right? The U.S. government, like you said, I mean, there's programs that they can implement that can help some of the the native, right, the tribes that are out there. And it's interesting because I think it is going to be a mindset shift because I even know myself, right? I have friends that are, you know, normal people, but, you know, and they're not even racist, right? But you hear them say stuff like, you know, like, hey, let's, uh, can't we move on? How much money do we need to pay? And then let's go move on. That's the mentality of like kind of normal people sometimes, right? And so when you hear that, you know, what is that? Do you still see the positive, you know, some, I mean, I guess you're seeing growth, so that's a good thing, right? Right. And I, I remind people all the time, it's an interesting thing to think about and to look at, and most people don't know this. So American Indians have a unique standing in the United States because programs that face or are provided for tribes, whether it be through a university or, or, or other entity, they're based not on race, but they're based on the fact that American Indians federally recognized tribes have a unique political relationship with the United States government. So when a university says, we have this fellowship, for example, that's for an American Indian candidate to do you know, X, Y, and Z and become a lawyer or become a physicist or become a psychologist, those programs are based on the fact that the two governments have a relationship. They're not based on race. It's an agreement between governments. And so a friend of mine recently said, how can there be rodeos that are for Indians only? If I put on a rodeo as a white person and I said, no Mexicans or other races, this is a white person only rodeo, he said, I'd get my butt sued. How can Indians get away with that? And I said, well, because American Indian tribes have a relationship with the federal government that is a government to government relationship. 
it's not race-based. It's based on an agreement. It's based on a treaty. And there's this history wherein the tribe as a respected, separate, but equal entity is allowed to determine membership in their community. So it's hard for people to get their minds around and people overcomplicate it and say, well, it's still based on race. Right. <laughs> and I can see how they go to that. Yeah. Gosh. That sort of home base, but it's not, it really is based on this government to government relationship. And so when folks don't understand that it leads to hard feelings. And I try to remind people all the time, it's not the same as a, you know, as a minority or race-based situation. It's, it's a little different politically and legally. Yeah, no, that's great clarification. That definitely helps a lot. So let's talk about Tribal Wars, because I think this is a really powerful movie that was put together. And I think, I mean, essentially you created, I think, uh, I'm not sure how it all went down, but you were a big person behind the development of this movie. So describe Tribal Waters. Like, how did it come to be and what does it mean to you? So I have a good friend who works for Teton Gravity Research, John Klockowitz. Everybody calls him JK. So JK calls me up a couple of years ago and says, hey, Patagonia has uh, an RFP for a film to be put together based on their core issues, water, fish, conservation, and environmental justice. Actually, environmental justice may not have been part of that original RFA we looked at. So anyway, here's the way this developed. I said, send it to me. Let's look at it. So we looked at it and he said, what do you think if we were to do this you know, at Wind River? And so I looked at it and I said, it looks like they're looking for a short film and they're really looking for like kind of a fishing film. And he's like, yeah, what do you think? Could we put something together? And I said, well, I don't really have any interest in making a fishing film that ends up being kind of a commercial. Yeah. And I'm not saying that because Patagonia doesn't really have their films aren't commercial. But I said, what I do have is a story in my mind based on a paper that I wrote in graduate school when I took some classes from the law school at the University of Montana about our water rights case here at Wind River. And I'd really like to tell that story. And maybe they'd be interested in this as an idea. So we talked about it some more and I said, look, here's the, the premise is that we have this huge amount of water that's been awarded to us in current and future water rights, but it's all based on agriculture. They've sort of tied our hands saying, if you don't use this water for agriculture, you don't get to use it for anything. Oh, wow. And so as I sort of unfolded the story for JK, he said, yeah, let's meet with them and, and you pitch it. So we did partway through the, the meeting, one of the members of the film team at Patagonia says, Darren, is there an environmental justice component to this film? And I said, that is the film. Basically, we have a river that's dying, Yeah. but it's by someone's choice. And it's an infringement on another group of people. And she said, I think we go with what you're proposing, which is a much longer film. And I love the environmental justice piece. And we're in. So they offered us the, the funding, most of what we thought we would need. And we went for it. So that's how this came together. So... The idea of a film that was about the water rights case and about our community and our inability to use our water rights that was that were awarded to us by the United States Supreme Court, or at least respected, I guess I shouldn't say awarded. I don't feel like the Supreme Court gave us anything. I think those were our water rights, and the Supreme Court acknowledged that that was the case. Yeah. So we jumped in. <laughs> and of course, you know, if you've seen it, there is some fishing in there. But the case is really about the fact that we have this huge water award that we've been really kind of hamstrung and how we're allowed to use, and it's been detrimental. And it's going to continue to be detrimental if something doesn't change. I'll put a link to Tribal Waters to that in the show notes. Anybody can take a look. It's definitely a great film. Now, from that filming, has anything changed from the making of that film? So nothing has changed per se, like actual events, but it's been really interesting. The feedback has been incredible, and we have generated a lot of interest 
from individuals who have literally said, what can we do to help? I've had several suggestions of things that might be helpful. And we came up with a plan based on, again, thinking about the future, thinking about conservation, which would create a foundation. And that foundation would be responsible for, at least this is my hope, is what we can do is create this foundation that would be able to raise and manage funds that could purchase land you know, within the boundaries of the reservation that was historically tribal land that was either given away through the Allotment and Homestead Act or sold or traded or one way or another ended up out of tribal ownership. So we get that land back. We look at two things. One is taking the water rights away from use for high-intensive agricultural watering purposes, things like alfalfa, corn, things that are really water-intensive crops. And we return that landscape to more native grasses, things that don't require as much water. And we either dedicate, at the very least, maybe we lease that water back to the tribes or the river, or we somehow get that water back as an in-stream flow. And we use that land base to graze and increase the number of buffalo on the reservation. Oh, wow. That's my goal. Yeah, that's amazing. I think I've heard some interesting things out there on the conservation end where part of it is just, you know, people don't realize, right? They, it's this old way, like agriculture, sure, you know, we need agriculture, take all the water. But I've heard these things about farmers out there that, you know, have always been against, for example, like beaver dams and stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Just because it dams and floods. But they're realizing in some of these areas that now the farmers, where you do the beaver dams, it actually increases the riparian area, right? Right. Which is a more healthy area. So now the animals don't have to be right in the creek. Like literally there's more, and they have more healthy areas to do their, you know, grow crops and stuff. So it's like, I think there's a lot of this stuff people don't realize. You know, for you, do you see that? I mean, like as far as the change, I mean... Do you see like a good path forward on this or does it seem like there's still, I mean, obviously lots of challenges, but are you pretty positive about where you're headed? I'm very positive about where we're headed. And I do think that it makes sense. And people are starting to realize those things, like you said, about the benefit of improved riparian areas due to beaver dams, the benefit of fencing off streams so that the cattle aren't beating the banks down. And there's, you know, one or two areas where they can get to water. They don't need to ruin the entire stream bank. I think a lot of those things are coming around. It's just the benefit of information and technology. And folks are seeing that there is a way to coexist. You know, one entity doesn't have to get completely shut out for another entity to thrive. Exactly. Nice. Well, I think, you know, Patagonia, we did an episode 345 with Ted Manning, and we talked about really just Patagonia and kind of everything they have going. What was it like from your perspective working with Patagonia, like doing this uh, film? So they weren't involved much other than they funded us. We did check in with them a couple of times throughout the process and then sort of delivered the final product. Oh, wow. Yeah. So Teton Gravity Research put the film, I mean, they made the film. Gotcha. I mean, Patagonia is the lead sponsor. There's no doubt. And this couldn't happen without them, right? Yeah. It's been interesting because I love their products. I'm a big believer in Yvonne Chouinard's approach of make the best product do the least harm. That's the approach I've taken with my business in terms of how we treat the river and the fish. So I was very honored to be able to say we made this film and it was, you know, it was financed primarily by Patagonia. So I think that that part of it has been great. I think overall their mission of how Yvonne has run that business over the years and just the integrity he's kept where he's just focused on you know, in every instance, doing the right thing, even if it was a little bit harder and, and a little bit more expensive to produce products, 
has been the right way to do it. When he essentially gave the company to the earth a few weeks back, people were texting me like, wow, check this out. Yeah. I was returning texts to them saying like, that's terrific, but does that surprise you? Right. If there was one person on the planet that was going to do something like that, who would you have thought would have done that? Right. Yeah, totally. So I think, you know, I've had some conversations with him recently and told him, I think, you know, that's admirable. I mean, it's not surprising that he did that, but it's nonetheless, it's admirable. It's sort of like the, you know, the Bill Gates and Warren Buffett thing where they're going to give all their money away to causes that they deem worthy. Yeah. You know, there just are people who are, are just committed to doing the right thing on this world. And clearly he's one of them. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I didn't even know about the, the Warren Buffett deal. So that's amazing as well. At the start, you talked about, which was interesting. We'll try to track down some of that to uh, Gordon Eastman in his films. What, what were his films called? What was the series? So he had a series of wildlife films he made. High, Wild, and Free, The Savage Wild, Wild Arctic. What period would that have been when he... That was the late 60s, early 70s. That's right. So where I was going with this was just, I mean, he was a big influence on your fly fishing, right? Where does all the conservation and everything, you know, where does that come in for you? How does that start? So the conservation piece to me, I feel like I started learning a little bit about that as a, as a fly angler at a very young age as a child. But, but I really owe the bulk of that knowledge and passion to protect and conserve to our community. The Shoshone and Arapaho tribes signed over a million acres into a wilderness protection roadless area several years before the United States started to recognize wilderness areas and roadless areas. So our community, our two tribes have been focused on conservation and resource protection our entire history for thousands of years. But even, you know, more recently, like I said, in the, in the late sixties, early seventies, that movement was started, but the Shoshone and Arapaho tribes were one of the first governments to do so. And so it wasn't hard to do that or to think about that when you're raised in that kind of an environment in that community. Mm-hmm. So the fact that we have this amazing river that we're the only outfitter allowed to be on, which again, is part of our resource protection approach with outfitting on the Wind River Reservation, it felt like we owed it to the river and to the fish to be conservation focused and to protect them, right? Yeah. So. It's great to be able to utilize the resource to create a business, to create jobs and and make a living. But really, we're all here for such a short time. Why would you want to like have a negative impact on that when you could do just the opposite? Exactly. It seems like a no-brainer, you know, and I think that's what's cool about the fly fishing space, right? Is you're around people that think the same way. The challenge again is that you got people out there I know again that think, you know, that you can kind of trash on stuff and then technology is going to save us even to the point of, you know, and then you have politics that you mix in, which (laughs) makes it even tougher because climate change and everything else. Yeah. I mean, I think people figure we're going to engineer our way out of everything. Exactly. And we're not, you know, we we shouldn't do it that way. There are so many resources already out there where people are sending, you know, multiple boats down the river. And so if you want that, that exists for you. But if you want something different, which is what I've always wanted, then that's how I I felt like I wanted to find my way into that space. Like I wanted there to be something different as I allude to in the film. Today's episode is sponsored by Zag.Fish, who was founded with the idea of finding ethical solutions to fly tying products and services. They've done just that by creating jobs for marginalized people, both in the U.S. and abroad. They've got uh, everything covered. We've had a recent episode on with uh, John Grosta, who talked about... uh, some of the great products they have with the fishing he does in Florida. 
uh, with the Fairflies brushes. They've got the 5D brushes and their uh, fly fur, which is pretty amazing. Tons of people are loving this stuff for its durability and the speed that allows you to tie flies. John talked about that on the podcast. Uh, and he said that just uh, basically it's going to add on at least 15 to 20 minutes to uh, each fly you tie if you're not using these brushes. Zag also has uh, Wasatch custom angling tools in their satchel with over 50 uh, custom heirloom tools that go along with your materials. So they are a true do-it-yourself company, and you got to check out zag.fish right now. If you want to, you can head over to wetflyswing.com zag, and you can get 20% off your first order by clicking through that link. And uh, let them know you heard... Uh, of them through this podcast and you'll get that 20% discount right now. That's wetflyswing.com slash Zag, Z-A-G. Okay, back to the show. What is the Wind River for, you know, and I've been out near that area. I've spent some time out there, but describe that to somebody listening now who's never been to that neck of the woods and or that part of the country. What makes it special out there? So we have the longest continuous chain of the Rockies in the lower 48 running through a good part of the reservation, the Wind River Mountain Range. So it's a little over 100 miles long, and it all drains down into the the two main stems. There's tons of little creeks and tribs, but the two main stems are the Big Wind River and the Little Wind River. So they ended up, you know, they, they confluence near Riverton, Wyoming, and flow into Boysen Reservoir. So there's, you know, 100 miles of stream. Not all of it is, you know, trout worthy, but it could be if there wasn't people taking so much water out of the river throughout the summer, again, which is part of the point of the film. And it's an interesting area geographically because you have this very beautiful mountain range, high alpine, you know, snowpack, creeks, rivers draining down into these rivers that are down on more of the high plains desert area. Then they come down and get collected in the Boysen Reservoir, and then that goes down through the Wind River Canyon. So you've got this, you know, it's just amazing two and a half million acre area that feeds these these rivers. And we've got the Wind River Canyon is a tailwater because it's a little boys and reservoir. The, the majority of the Wind River is a freestone stream. Hmm. So we have both, right? We have a tailwater and we have this amazing huge area of, of freestone with lots of wild trout, brown trout, cutthroat trout, rainbow trout, and no stocking on that part of the reservation. So it's all, they're all wild and limited pressure because of the conservation policies of, of two tribes at Wind River. So you can fish the river on your own, but you can't float it. Oh, That's restricted to outfitting. And again, the tribes have this policy of only putting one outfitter in each area. So it's, uh, again, it's sharing it and utilizing it is encouraged, but protecting it is prioritized. Gotcha. So if somebody was coming out to that area, they could go in and get a, a fishing license and go out on their own and just and fish. And wade fish, correct. Okay, but no boats, no boats at all. Correct. Yeah, gotcha, okay. Other than through a permitted outfitter. Yeah, yeah, well, that's great. I'm guessing access is pretty good out there for if you want to do a foot wade and fish. There are some, some good access. A lot of the access is really remote and it's challenging. you got to know the, the tribal landowners and get permission. Oh, right. But it's possible. Yeah, it's possible, okay. So if somebody was setting, like most of the time, if you're setting up a trip and you want to do it, it'd be best to get at least a guide for a little bit, right, to get out there and figure out the country. Right, to kind of find your way around and know where you should go and shouldn't go and places to, you know, to ask for permission if the landowners are, are friendly to anglers or not so much. Most of them are friendly. 
Yeah, that's awesome. So what is the trip when you guys do these? Are these kind of like remote multi-day with like whitewater and stuff or is it more tailwater stuff? No, the trips on the upper wind, the freestone section that we do are all uh, float. Well, actually, we have a couple small sections we do some wade fishing on, but they're just day trips, most of those. The trips in the Wind River Canyon are, are primarily fishing and lodging. We don't really do day trips in the canyon anymore. We built a lodge in 2015. Oh, wow. And again, it's a small operation. You know, we, we typically have six folks there. Sometimes there's eight. And we put two boats per day in the Wind River Canyon, which is about 15 miles long. So we do one boat in the upper half, one boat in the lower half. And that's it. That's our limit for the canyon. And that's self-imposed. Um, we could do more if we wanted, but but we don't want to. I, I would just refuse to do that. I think it's a bad approach for the river. I just don't think it's as healthy as doing one boat per section per day. We try to stick to that same thing on the upper wind. We try to do one boat per section per day. The challenge up there is a couple of the floats we have just because of the, the way the land layout is. The the put in and take out are make for a really long float. Like there's a couple of them that are 13 plus miles. So we will occasionally put two boats on one of those sections because there's enough distance we can stay spread out throughout the day. Yep. But if we do that, we typically try the next day or two to not put two boats on there. Again, to just keep that pressure to a minimum. Yeah. Wow. Sounds amazing. You know, we were just up in Alaska and, uh, you know, I mean, it was a pretty remote area, you know. And uh, yeah, those are some remote trips. But still the same thing though. I mean, we flew it. We like first time I've ever done that, you know, did the helicopter thing into the middle of Alaska and we didn't see really anybody on the river, but you know, I mean, like you could, there's places in Alaska where you definitely could. And it sounds like here is a place if you did this trip with you, you, you wouldn't see anybody else on that float. You mostly do not see other anglers. Sometimes you'll see some wade anglers, you know, that have permission to access some property or people that are just willing to put the time in and hike down along the river and fish. In the Wind River Canyon, you see more wade anglers because it's right beside the highway. The upper wind, that's not the case. It's definitely more remote and less accessible. So you don't see nearly as many wade anglers. So there are days when you do trips with us, yeah, you won't see anyone else. Yeah. So in the tailwater section, is that a section you're floating as well? Correct. Yeah. So that's kind of where the big, I mean, I'm just thinking like size wise. So you're getting some big browns and things like that in the lower river. Correct. In the tailwater section, we tend to catch you know, it's a typical tailwater. The fish are a little more sort of standard sized. You know, I don't know if I would call them cookie cutter, but they're a standard tailwater fish. Chunky, 18 to 22, 23 inches is, is a standard fish in that section. Oh, wow. Certainly some bigger fish than that. Uh, the freestone, again, typical freestone where you're kind of fishing for all classes of fish. You might catch a 20 inch brown and then your next three fish might be an eight inch cutthroat and a nine inch rainbow. And then, you know, you get a, a hybrid that's 16, 17 inches, and then you get another 20 inch. So you're kind of bouncing all over the map all day on the, on the freestone section. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. All wild fish. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, that is cool. And I just like all these things, you know, it's the experience of, it is nice to catch some nice fish, but, it, you know, out there, I can imagine it's just, you know, on the river, kind of on your own. That's what it's about. Yeah. And, and just being in a beautiful place and looking around and realizing like, you know, that it's protected. There's something about that that I think is unique and obviously i believe that it's special yeah so it is protected it's a protected area but getting back to the water i mean basically the issue is is that so how does that work so they're obviously taking out water they use it talk a little more about that what that looks like on the river how that affects trout populations so i mentioned this hundred mile chain of the wind rivers and all that water drains down into this you know down into this flatter area where the water comes down collects in the river and, and continues to move on. There's a, a, an area called the Diversion Dam, which is, as it's described in the film Tribal Waters, it's like a big plug in the river. 
and it diverts most of the water out of the river. Some, some parts of the year when there's a lot of water in the river during runoff and right after runoff when the water is higher, it's taking a lot less, you know, maybe 10, 15 percent of the river. But as that starts to drop throughout the summer, as things start to dry out and the snow melt is gone, that percentage that it takes out of the river increases to sometimes where it, there's more water going down this irrigation canal they call the Wyoming Canal than there is in the river. And they take so much water that it starts to, it's dropped enough that sustainability for trout very far below the diversion dam drops dramatically because trout can't handle the, you know, the warm, low oxygen level water. Further downstream, there's also an irrigation project that again, diverts even more of what little water there is left in the Wind River down near the area in Riverton, the riverton Leclerc district. And these guys will actually do things like doze the river bottom up with bulldozers and backhoes and stuff late in the summer oh, wow. to divert most, if not all, the water down into their canals. Damn. And that's that's technically against the law. You know, according to the Army Corps of Engineers, you're not supposed to be able to, to change the flow of a navigable riverbed. And these guys do it all the time. Wow. So we end up with very little water below Riverton. I mean, there's years, I've, I say this in the film, there's years I've driven through Riverton over the bridge on the south side of town and the river's dry. And this is the main stem river. This is the main stem. This is the Big Wind River. Wow. It's flowing into, what is it eventually flowing into? Poison Reservoir, which goes into, you know, that's where the Wind River Canyon comes out, goes down, becomes the Bighorn, which goes, eventually gets into the Yellowstone and the Missouri and the Mississippi. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. This is a major trip and major, major river into these huge systems. Yeah. And, and there's no need for them to take that much water. For example, upstream from Riverton at the Diversion Dam, a lot of that water that gets diverted goes down into the Midvale Irrigation District, services those irrigation, you know, those agricultural fields. and But that eventually stays in that canal system and ends up in this area called Five Mile Creek, which comes back into Boysen Reservoir. There are years where the river in Riverton is dry or, or close to being dry. And yet Five Mile Creek is dumping anywhere from three to five, 600 cubic feet per second into Boysen. So that tells you right there, there's taking so much water out at Diversion Dam that they're not even using it all. It's ending up in Boysen Reservoir, but it's circumventing staying in the river system. Oh, man, that is crazy. And, you know, when all this litigation broke out initially, so the Shoshone and Arapaho tribes won this large water award, or it was recognized. Like I said, I didn't think they gave us anything. They recognized our, our water award. At that point, we had already developed a tribal water code we dedicated a large portion of our futures water right to in-stream flows. So we weren't trying to take anyone's water. We were saying, look, for our for our water that we could use in the future, we want to dedicate some of that futures water right to in-stream flow. Well, the state read that as us trying to take their water away. They sued us. The outcome of the litigation was that we were only allowed to use this water for agriculture, and so we could not dedicate it to in-stream flow. Oh, gotcha. However, in the initial ruling at the district court level, when we sued over the adjudication portion of the case, which was the right to use the water as we saw fit, there was one year, and I believe it was 1990, where the state had to recognize the in-stream flow because the court order, and so they couldn't let the river drop below 252 cubic feet per second. In that year, they had as good or better of a crop for all the irrigators, the, the state irrigators, that they had had in the previous 30 years. So that right there is the only piece of evidence that anyone can point to to say whether or not in-stream flow would have any impact on crops. Yeah, there you go. And it's pretty clear that it didn't, right? Yep. So this whole notion that like, oh, they're going to they're gonna dry us up, they're going to ruin the agricultural economy of Fremont County is clearly false. Right. God. 
So there's a way to coexist. It's just going to take some effort and some money and some resources. And this entire irrigation district of Midvale was built with money that was supposed to be spent to build an Indian irrigation project, yet it serves almost no Indians. Mm. It's a travesty. And look, I have nothing against any of the folks that are in the Midvale area, those individuals. I don't want to see their lives and their livelihoods upended or destroyed. I just want us, the Shoshone and Arapaho tribes, to be able to use what is rightfully ours. And I do think, as is pointed out by one of the game and fish biologists from U.S. Fish and Wildlife in the film, there are ways to make this happen with technology and computers and turning head gates on and off and monitoring how much water is needed. There are ways we could leave enough water in the river to satisfy both. Instead, we just get told, well, you're not going to use it for agriculture. You don't get to use it at all. Yeah. Wow. Again, well, now back to the technology is that there is technology. You could spend some money to create the systems right. that will, you know, systematize, right? And so you can know. So, yeah, it's not a, like, just take it all for ag, take what you can before, you know, or it's the tragedy of the commons, really, right? It's that tragedy of, like, literally, we got to take it before the next guy takes it. That's exactly right. There's that use it or lose it mentality. And I think if we could get everybody, and that, that's part of the goal of this foundation as well, is how do we do that going forward? I mean, I think the land acquisition for the buffalo and the water, dedication of water to in-stream flow, that's great. But how do we take care of what's in place now? And how do we help folks that are worried that tribes are just trying to, you know, dry them out or whatever, which has never been our goal? How do we manage all that? How do we get all the players to the table? How do we all work this out? That's a challenge. And it's a challenge because it becomes emotional. That is a challenge. And if there's anything that we've learned in the field of psychology is that emotion is a powerful motivator. Fear, hate, those powerful emotions drive decisions that in my mind are often unwise. Yeah. Well, I think the secret is, well, it's not the secret, but I think that, like you said, getting people to the table, because when you're sitting there face to face with somebody, you know, and looking at them in the eyes and maybe they're crying or whatever. I mean, it's like, it's hard to be a total, you know, to not see, to not even listen, right? Right. To be empathetic. Are you guys seeing that as like when you have, is that part of the plan here is to get everybody around a table and be like, okay, let's talk about this as a community, right? We have the same goals. Right. Part of it is definitely, I mean, in my mind, yes, that is definitely a goal. I would love to be able to say the tribes have a seat at the table and that seat at the table is just as important as the Bureau of Reclamation seat at the table. And that seat at the table is just as important as the state irrigators and just as important as the tribal irrigators and just as important as the tribal recreation use of water. All those folks should have an equal say. And everybody's got to realize that nobody should get everything they want, right? If someone's getting everything they want, that means somebody else is getting the short end of the stick, at least in my mind. And, and I'm not looking for some kumbaya moment. I know there's no perfect solution. That's why I say everybody's going to have to give a little bit. And I think there's, you know, Wes Martell, who's a, a main part of the film, just because of his experience and his roles in tribal government and leadership. He makes that point. There's some room for compromise, but there's got to be room for compromise on, on all sides. Yeah, that's the word I was looking for is that, you know, in politics, in a perfect, if you take that example in a perfect world, I mean, that's what it's about. It's about compromising. You're not going to get everything, but you got to you know, listen to the other person and find a compromise. Right. That's like, okay, the, you know, this is about as good as we have right now. And then you keep working on it. And I think we get stuck in that mentality of who's right and who's wrong and who's going to win and who's going to lose. Exactly. 
So, you know, we're not going to be able to go into the whole, you know, everything today on all the issues around water. It's a big issue. What do you recommend if somebody's listening now, you know, they want to learn more, they want to do more, they want to help out, you know, whatever that is. What do you tell people? I would certainly tell people if they haven't seen the film to take a look at it. I would say try to think about it critically, educate yourself a little bit on the history of the relationship between American Indian tribes and the United States government. A lot of people misunderstand and think that, you know, I keep self-correcting on the issue of whether or not we were given an award of water. Instead, I tell people, think about this. The recognition of tribal sovereignty is key because at the time a lot of these treaties were signed, the idea was that the two governments, the government of whether it was a Plains Indian tribe or a Northwestern coast or Northeastern tribe, the idea was to recognize that group of people as politically and legally sovereign and independent and equal to. And that's what a lot of those old treaties were based on. So seeing this relationship between governments as equal, not that the federal government has, quote unquote, given anything. You know, like, oh, they gave this reservation to the Indians or they give the Indians free health care. No, no, no. That's not how that works. Right. Tribal sovereignty from the tribal perspective is as much of a recognition of equalness as anything. So some folks will even say it was tribal sovereignty wasn't so much given to tribes, but was given to the United States government. And like these these groups of people were willing to recognize the United States government as equal to. Right. So it was really this idea was always that there was going to be the sovereignty was recognized in both directions. I think that's key to understanding that and understanding that there is this political standing that American Indians are recognized as rather than it being race-based. And if people would try to wrap their mind around that and think about that, that would help resolve a lot of animosity towards these groups of folks who are American Indian tribes. Right. Yeah, that is great clarification because I think, again, Part of it is education. I don't think people understand, right, all the the back, even the history. I mean, obviously, the history that you're told in school, but you don't get the whole thing of how it went down and what you just explained there about sovereignty. Absolutely. I think it's critical to realize that that piece of sovereignty should be recognized and to think about it because we're not taught that. We are taught, you know, very whitewashed version of how events unfolded in the United States. And it's key to help understand for folks who who maybe don't grow up around Indians and don't learn anything about American Indians, because otherwise we end up with the dances with wolves syndrome or phenomenon where everybody thinks, well, do Indians still live in teepees? Do they still, you know, only hunt buffalo or whatever their preconceived notions are? Right. So there's a there's a kernel of truth in every stereotype, right? Yeah. But we've moved on beyond that. People just don't know that and don't recognize that and don't realize that. And look. It is the fault of our education system because we're all ignorant just on different subjects. That's an old Will Rogers quote. You know, nobody knows everything. We can't know it all. So we should always look to, to educate ourselves and learn things that we don't know. Exactly. The dances with Will, I can't leave that one on the table because that was like a classic, you know, Kevin Costner back whenever that was, the 80s. What was the premise of that? I mean, I can't remember exactly what that was. So it was a movie about the great horse culture of the plains, the Sioux and the, and the Cheyenne, right? Yeah. And the fact that there was this amazing culture in place that was really impacted by this westward expansion. It's a great film. It's beautiful. The cinematography was incredible. The acting was tremendous. I love that film. <laughs> but at the same time, one of the things that a film like that does is reinforces those stereotypes. You know, we don't all live in teepees. We don't all still you know, scalp, right. shoot arrows into people. And, and it's not that that didn't happen. Of course it happened, but 
that notion that that's what American Indians are is reinforced by films like that. But at the same time, it brought a lot of attention to the fact that, you know, there are Indian issues that need addressed, like the mascots and other things. And and slowly, you know, we're seeing progress on all those fronts. It was interesting to see the Washington football team for years, the previous ownership and even the current ownership were just absolutely resistant to changing that. And people would often ask me, don't you think there are more important things for Indians to worry about than whether or not the Washington football team continues to use that name and that moniker? And I said, well, Yes and no. Of course, there are more important things, right? Like how are people going to feed their families and keep heating in their homes in the wintertime? But at the same time, those bigger sort of macro level issues hold all those micro level issues back. How do we advance as a people and then get ahead in a society when people see us as these mascots that they can make fun of? Oh, right. Right? Yep. And you're talking about the Washington, the, uh, the NFL football team. Correct. Now they're what? The commanders. Oh, gotcha. So see, and I haven't, I'm totally out of sports, so I don't even know. But again, to me, I think of, there's a lot of these issues that are up there. And I'd imagine that's one, like, maybe this is what you're saying that, yeah, I mean, part of it, it gets it out to the people. Like people don't even realize, they don't even think about that name, the previous name being, you know, the impact. Right. But the fact that now these are getting changed, people now it's, they're thinking about it. Even if they don't agree with it, they're still thinking about it, right? It's almost like you're planting the seed for future change. Absolutely. Yes. Again, you know, the Dances with Wolves movie, it got some attention to some great acting as well by some Native people like Graham Greene, one of the main characters in the film. So there can be good come from things that, you know, not everything has to be one way or the other. There can be a lot of good that can come from things that, you know, maybe the some of the negativity of a film like Dances with the Wolves would be like, well, it reinforced this really negative stereotype and on and on and on. But it also brought some attention to a group of people who then were able to advocate for themselves. There can be some positives from things like that. Yeah, definitely. Wow, this is pretty amazing stuff. I think we're all getting an insight into, you know what I mean? This is the stuff that, you know, regularly we're not talking about. So this is important. I, I was thinking, do you look at other countries, other tribes, other examples? You know, I always think of Canada, right? It's a little different up there. You've heard these stories where maybe the tribal governments have more power up there on some of these issues. Have you looked into that at all or seen any precedence or are we just our own thing down here? So I think we are clearly our own thing, but I do try to pay attention to indigenous issues all across the, the planet, literally. I do think they do some interesting things in Canada. I do think the tribes do have a little bit more power in some ways uh, than we do in the United States, but but not all. I think we have some unique things in our relationship with the governments that the Canadian tribes wish they had. But I think that recognition of indigenous people worldwide has started to change for the better. I see some things happening in New Zealand and Australia that are hopeful, but then you see other things that happen that just make you shake your head. I think that recognition of people who have lived a particular way for thousands of years and done right by the environment is a good thing. I don't think it's always recognized because I do believe that at the end of the day, there's this driving force. And and oftentimes it's something economic that, Mm. you know, well, we we can go ahead and cut these trees down and we'll, we'll grow more. Not to oversimplify it, but I think that that we all get caught up in that. And there can be simpler ways to do things that are better for us all in the end. Again, I come back to this point with people all the time. Like, we're only here for a short time. Why would we want to do lasting damage? And I, I saw a poster. I tell everybody this story. I saw a poster a while back. I'm trying to remember where. I'm sure it's out there. You probably find it on the internet. And it's it's a picture of, essentially, you know, our ecosystem. And it's there's, it's a series of photos. And the first photo is this, like, barren landscape the river looks like it's all dried up and then there's no leaves on the trees and the plants are all dead laying on the ground and it says 
below that the caption says, if bees go extinct. <laughs> and then the caption below that, it's this beautiful like Garden of Eden type <laughs> depiction, right? The river's flowing and the trees are all beautiful and the flowers are, and there's fish jumping out of the water. And below that, the caption says, if humans go extinct. Right. And that's true. Like we as a species <laughs> have an amazing way to just really mess things up. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I mean, that's, I'll have to try to find that, track that down somewhere and put that in the show notes as well, because it's pretty powerful. We're good at messing things up. I guess we're, we're animals, right? But it's interesting, but we're kind of not, we don't consider ourselves really connected to nature in the same way. Right. But that's interesting. I've always, that's one thing I have always known and you always hear about is how, you know, all the, you know, indigenous folks in this country, that's always been a big part, right? How the fish and the animals are part of the family, right? Describe that a little bit. Like, what is that? That's something we've all, I think, heard about, but is that a still a pretty powerful thing that you think about a lot? Yes, it is. I believe in our community, we are, we're driven by that. In the, in the mid to late seventies, there was a proposal within our community to create a game code because we, since our reservation was established, we were allowed to hunt game year round. Now that was because it was because we as a community relied on that hunting ability to sustain and, and provide for families year round. But it started to become abused by a small number of people who were doing things like shooting elk in the velvet just to get the horns because they're worth more money and oh, wow. shooting, you know, slaughtering literally herds of elk and chopping the horns off the bulls and maybe taking the hindquarters of a few of the animals and just literally leaving the less, the rest to lay there and rot and go to waste. So enough people in the community finally said, okay, enough is enough. And this game code was very controversial, but, but our game populations had gotten so low, it was really hard to find a deer or an elk without really hunting hard and having horses and packing in. And I mean, the animals were, were becoming very, very scarce in the reservation. I don't remember as a young kid, I don't remember ever seeing an antelope. Mm. Now, so the game code passed in the early 80s and it was fraught with controversy. And there were families that were pitted against each other and there were people who were so mad that, you know, this is the white man's way and we're ruining things. But as predicted, the animals in a short number of years, even like the following year and a couple of years later, the numbers just started to go up and up and up. And there's a an individual at home by the name of Jason Baldez who runs the Tribal Buffalo Initiative. His father, Dick Baldez, was the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Biologist at Wind River. He was really spearheading this effort to get a game code passed to save our wildlife. And a lot of people were really mad at him. Other people were less less mad. Our family was very supportive because we knew that, that this was going to be good in the end. And now we have the best herds of elk and antelope and deer. Hmm. Because we changed that approach and said, look, this isn't who we are. We're not, we're not wasteful people. We shouldn't be doing this. So yeah, we are all still driven by that connection to, you know, our brothers and, and sisters that are the fish and the birds. And our entire culture is based on reciprocity. So you take care of me, I take care of you, whether that's the fish or the plants, the animals, the birds, and that relationship, you know, not to get too sanctimonious about this, but that, that relationship and trying to keep things in some balance and harmony is going to benefit in the long run, everyone and everything. And when it starts to get too one-sided, that, that goes awry. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Meal Bars, made by a small team of passionate outdoor enthusiasts. The Range team only uses the highest quality gluten-free ingredients 
and they know they want to fuel your body with the right stuff. We did a recent episode where we talked about backpacking and packing your pack and getting ready for a might be a hike into a high mountain lake. And we talked about the power of food and getting the right food in your pack and how important that is to shaving off a weight. And this bar packs a punch with 700 calories. This is a super dense bar, tastes good, and uh, and it's exactly what uh, we were talking about in that episode. It's, so you can pretty much throw one bar in there if you had to. To be honest, this thing would probably make you through a couple of meals. I eat these things whenever I need to, and usually one chunk of this, one bite, will keep me going for quite a while. So it's quite a bit different now that I've been snacking on these for a while, definitely than pretty much all the other meal bars because of the caloric intake. And this is important when you're out there for safety or on the water or just staying uh, from from that, keeping that uh, stomach from growling. Like I said, range bar is small enough to fit in your hand and slides easily into your pocket of your vest or sling pack, anything you need. They currently have two flavors. Uh, one is chocolate coffee, and the other is molasses ginger sea salt. You can check out Range right now at wetflyswing.com slash range. R-A-N-G-E. Range meal bars. You won't go back to the normal bar. Okay, back to the show. I want to take it back just in, as we start to think about taking this out of here, you know, back to the fishing because, you know, obviously people, you know, they're listening are all fly fishermen and women and things like that. And absolutely, you are in this pretty special place. So I, I want to talk a little bit about that fishing. So if we were to come in today, say I was to come in, you know, just say, hey, I want to do a trip. You know, what, what do you recommend? It sounds like it's pretty limited. Is there a time of year you recommend or are you guys open throughout the whole year? What, what's that look like? So it's funny because that's always the $64 question. People are like, what's the best time to come fishing? Yeah. And I tell people, look, the fishing is always, in, in my mind, the fishing is always good. It really depends on what, what do you like to do? Do you like to streamer fish? Do you like to nymph? Do you like to fish dry flies? Yeah. Let's take dry flies. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, most people are like, oh, we want to fish dries. That's, that's everybody's favorite, which is great. It is fun to see fish come up and eat a dry fly. Yeah. On the upper wind, it is in runoff mode, usually from late April to oh the third week of june pretty consistently sometimes the runoff will last a little longer than that if we get a heavy snowpack or have some late spring rain so usually by the third week of june we're starting to fish the upper wind and just for sake of our conversation let's start at the top of the drainage on the upper wind we start streamer fishing the minute it starts to get not even clear but it's not muddy any longer it's kind of this dark kind of juicy green where it's still high but there's you can tell that the water is clearing up and the streamer fishing is very good then so those fish are hungry. The water's been muddy for six weeks. They can start to see a little bit. They're looking for bait fish. They're looking for stoneflies, like all those sort of early season things. And we can get some pretty good dry fly fishing then too. And then that, of course, as that starts to continue to drop and clear, then the dry fly fishing really does start to pop. We see salmon flies. We see golden stones. Um, we get this mutant stone on that section of the river where the, the females, I think it's the females, maybe it's the males, one gender, the other can't fly, but they can skitter across the top of the water. Oh, yeah. So with a big dry fly, putting a lot of action, that you see some explosive takes and catch some big fish. And then that, of course, fades into the summer and we start to see hoppers and in the evenings there's caddis. So the dry fly fishing from usually about the second week of July on through early to mid-September is is really good with all those different critters like i said the stoneflies and then the caddis in the evenings the hoppers the beetles the crickets and then again in the late fall over there on the upper one we'll start going back to streamer fishing maybe a little dry dropper 
straight streamer, double streamer rigs. And, you know, we've got 35 miles of freestone stream that doesn't get a lot of pressure. So the chance to catch a fish that's some, you know, beast that's never been hooked is pretty good. <laughs> but I would say the the fish on that size probably range. And it's tough because it's a freestone. So the, all classes of fish are in there. But I'd, I'd say, you know, average fish on that section of the river is probably a 15 to 17 inch cutthroat brown rainbow you know all all nice fish wild fish fight hard a lot of fun to catch yeah that section of the river is prone to blowing out really easy because it's a freestone and there's tons of tribs and some of these tribs are dry part of the year so when it does rain enough to run a little bit of water they carry a lot of mud and silt so the, the river can blow out really easy from a 30 minute rainstorm but overall throughout the summer it fishes pretty consistently the wind river canyon is a tailwater it is back to the upper wind just for a second it's open the first of first to the 15th of april closes the end of september okay the wind river canyon which is the tailwater section below diversion dam is open year round oh cool we start out in the spring nymphing primarily a little bit of streamer fishing as the water starts to come up when they start releasing more water out of boys and reservoir the streamer fishing picks up usually we start fishing dries on the in the canyon oh i'd say with any consistency late may early june and then by mid-June, the dry fly fishing is usually pretty solid. We have yellow sallies. Uh, a lot of attractor patterns work well in the canyon because there's a lot of big browns to lay in kind of the thin water. And if you just put some movement on something big and buggy looking, they'll, they'll come and grab it. Hmm. Um, we do get cicadas in the canyon. As you know, cicadas are not an every year thing. Yep. But there's several subspecies of cicadas. So some years we'll get more than one subspecies going. And when that happens, they, the fish are really on the cicadas. So we get a few every year, but but it's not epic. About every five to seven years, we tend to see a couple of subtypes going, and then it gets pretty incredible. And then, of course, throughout the summer, we'll start fishing hoppers and crickets and beetles and other just big dries, just big attractors that you splat them down and kind of skate them around, and the fish will respond to those. The one difficult thing about the canyon for dry fly season is as that starts to happen, it's a tailwater. It starts to get lots of moss and grass, mm. so it can be a little frustrating you know, dealing with that. But it's like anything else. You just, you got to grind it out, you know? Yeah. We we do a lot of nymphing in the canyon as well. And that's very effective because it's, since it is a tailwater, there are a lot of, you know, sow bugs. There's a fair number of crayfish. So anywhere from small 18 to 20 sow bugs up to, you know, big six and eight size crayfish. Usually you got to hang those under some kind of a bobber. They'll usually pull a hopper down. Mm, gotcha. But very effective ways to fish throughout the summer. And the average fish in the canyon is probably, a, like I said, an 18 to 20 inch brown. There's a lot of big rainbows. There's a few nice cutthroat. And there's actually walleye in the canyon as well. That we oh, wow. Occasionally we'll get a walleye. Huh. And you'll catch a walleye on what? On fly. Oh, you know, it's, usually you'll get a walleye when you're nymphing. Sometimes when you're streamer fishing. I don't think I know personally. I've never got a walleye on a dry. I'm sure it's been done, but yeah. But we typically get those when we're nymphing. Interesting. Okay. And if you were coming in, let's say in that period, sometime in the summer, are people going in there like camping, campgrounds, staying in lodges? What's that look like? There are some campgrounds just above the canyon. It's part of Boise State Park. They have camping. There's also you know the town of Thermopolis. So there's a lot of little small family-owned hotels. There's a couple of chain hotels as well. So there's, there's good accommodations in Thermopolis and several nice little local restaurants. So finding a place to stay and, and getting accommodations in Thermopolis and finding food and fuel and those kinds of things is, is relatively easy. 
And I would say to fish with us in the summer in the canyon to get a guided trip, it's pretty hard just because what we do is we allow folks who have dates to keep those booked if they wish to, and nearly everybody does. So I tell people all the time, feel free to shoot me an email or get in touch with me. If nothing else, we'll put you on a wait list or a cancellation list. We don't get a ton of those, but you know, every few years people are like, look, you know, we've been there for three years in a row. Next year we're going to Alaska or something. And so openings do come along for sure. Gotcha. So what's the biggest town kind of just around that whole area, that region? Riverton is the biggest town. Riverton's about 15 to 18,000 people. There aren't that many people in Riverton, but there's a lot of like outlying communities. So that's sort of the central, that's the biggest town in Fremont County. Thermopolis is actually in Hot Springs County and Thermopolis is much smaller, about 3,500 people. The county seat for the area is, is Fremont County and that's over in Lander. Lander's a little smaller than Riverton. So there's, you know, that central Wyoming area, it's a lot of outlying, a lot of agriculture, a lot of energy jobs. So there aren't, there's no big thriving metropolis that's, you know, 40 or 50,000 people. It's a lot of spread out 8,000, 10,000, 5,000 kinds of communities. Oh, okay. And you're just, yeah, you're central. Well, and Yellowstone National Park is just kind of up northwest from where you're at. Correct. Yeah. So commercial air, Riverton has commercial air through uh served by united going through denver cody in the summer cody wyoming is near the east entrance to yellowstone they actually have delta and united during the summer casper which is a little to the east of us but they have commercial air delta and united and then of course jackson hole has delta american united oh they might but jackson holes you know it's three hours away yeah Riverton's an hour from Thermopolis. Riverton's pretty centrally located. Cody's a little over an hour from Thermopolis. So you can certainly get there. It's not easy if you're coming from, you know, way out of state and, and counting on commercial air, but it's doable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so people can easily fly in and grab a rental car and head out. Correct. And we get a lot of folks, especially in our whitewater business that are there for, you know, they've been in Yellowstone for a week, they were in Jackson for a week, and, you know, they go to Cody and hit the big, the, the museum. Uh, Buffalo Bill Historical Center. Oh, yeah. And they'll come to Thermopolis for a day or two, or they end up over in Dubois for a day or two, and we're able to link up with them. So Yellowstone is the draw for, you know, for the state, really. But it's interesting because there's a lot of parts of Wyoming that are, you know, they're beautiful and, and wild, and they're not, you know, they're not anywhere near Yellowstone or Jackson Hole. No, no, it's great. And I wish now, looking at, we were just over there, I think we'll have to hit this up, you know, when we get back there. But we were at the... uh we did kind of a tour with the kids and we stopped in Cody and actually shout out to, I always love to give uh, Superman uh, hip hop. He is a really cool, if you've not heard of him, he is a uh, native American hip hop artist and he played at um, the Buffalo Bill center. He did like an outdoor event. Yeah. I believe he's from the crow reservation. Yes, I think so. Yeah. He's pretty incredible. Yeah. That guy's amazing. We've been, I occasionally connected with, we went to a couple of his shows and it's been pretty funny because he's a super, Super nice guy. And he's very talented. He is. Oh, yeah, it's amazing. It's am- The story there is really interesting because he tells his story, you know, which is like he was he, doing the hip-hop, wasn't really resonating really. And then one time he was also doing the fancy dancing, right, for the community. And I think he was late for a show, and he had his costume all, or his outfit, or, you know, his fancy dance. And he just went into his hip-hop with it, and he thought it was going to be a bad thing. Like, you know, everybody was going to look down on him. But it turned out to be an amazing thing and actually resonated with everybody. And since then, that's what he does. Yeah. 
you know, and, and when we were there at Cody, my daughter actually got on stage with him and did a hip hop. It was pretty amazing. He brought up some kids from the audience and they made a song while they were on there. It was really cool. So anyways, I just love him and uh, awesome. love what he's doing. So, well, uh, Darren, I mean, tell me like what we talked about today. We've dug into, you know, a lot. I want to touch base to give people a feel. What have we, have we missed anything here? Anything you want to give a heads up on? The one thing I, I would like to bring up just briefly is we have an organization, and this is actually how I ended up getting connected with you to, to become a guest on your podcast, is Matt Schilling of IndieFly. And IndieFly is an organization that has focused on creating ecotourism and fly fishing businesses for indigenous populations across the planet, really. And so they have a presence at Wind River, and we've been working with them along with our tribal game and fish department at Wind River to create opportunities to try to get more kids involved, going back to the very issue you and I began talking about, which is to get folks who are from the Wind River community interested and involved in fly fishing or even just the outdoors, right? Even though our tribes historically are, you know, the two tribes at Wind River, the Shoshones and the Arapahoes are great basin slash plains tribes who depended on hunting and moving around to sustain livelihood. Now we are placed at Wind River and we've started to lose our connection with the outdoors and wildlife and those kinds of things because like other kids and the younger generation, technology, computers, cell phones, those kinds of things. Exactly. So I feel like there's this need in our community to reconnect our kids and our youth with the outdoors and to remember and remind them and teach them how important the outdoors in our community and on our reservation are. And so developing this outdoor economy, fishing, hiking, being out in the woods is an option for us because we have these incredible resources that if properly developed are sustainable and renewable and will provide for us like they have in the past, maybe in a little different direction for time eternity. Yeah. So I feel like we need to continue to work on that and focus in that area and organizations like IndieFly helping us provide those opportunities and put those kinds of programs together for connecting our youth and getting them interested in that kind of a economic opportunity is key to that future. Perfect. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that. And that was episode uh, 342. I'll have a link to that with, uh, uh, let's see. Yeah. With Matt Schilling. And, uh, yeah, we talked about that was where I first learned about, and that was through, you know, with what you guys have going and Oliver White, I know has a program down, you know, out and near the area. Right. And that's connected to Jimmy Kimmel and the crew. Right. And that whole thing. So I'm, I'm hoping to connect more with Oliver and stay connected and learn more about what's going on down there. Maybe even do some trips. That's kind of what I'm thinking is eventually get some people out there that want to experience that part of the the country. And um, I mean, there are a lot of other resources. So other than what you guys have going, I mean, what are the other big rivers that people would know about where they're coming there to fish? I mean, obviously Yellowstone, right? Right. In the Jackson Hole area, there's the Snake, the Wind River Range, the western slope of the Wind Rivers. There's the Green, mm. which is huge, right? Right. And the the New Fork, which is another stream on that western slope of the Wind Rivers. To the east of us is the Platte River system near Casper. Oh, wow. Which is, yeah, terrific. Great fishery. Gets lots of pressure, but it's, it's well managed. And it's it's a healthy river with holds a lot of big fish. Lots of outfitters down there. Yep. Uh, up in the Cody area, there's the Shoshone River system, which, again, is terrific. Some great fishing, great you know boating and, and whitewater as well. So there's a lot of resources around the state wow. that uh, people could explore. 
That is crazy. Yeah, I mean, you just mentioned, I mean, you could kind of look by state. I mean, the Snake River, you kind of think of Idaho, the green, you think of kind of Utah, the Platte, Colorado. But Wyoming is the headwaters for all those. Right. It's the headwaters, everything going. And then also, what about stuff going into, then you've got the Madison and all the stuff up towards Montana. Then you've, right, that's kind of connected there too. Right. So those are more associated. I mean, I guess technically some of that is is also the headwaters are in Wyoming because of Yellowstone. I mean, most of Yellowstone is in Wyoming. People associate Yellowstone with Idaho and with Montana a little bit, but the majority of the park, if you look at the state boundaries, is in Wyoming. So yeah, the Madison and some of those are the headwaters start there as well. Yeah. It's an amazing area. I think if anybody, you know, <laughs> hasn't been out to this and we get people all the time. I talk to listeners who are just, you know, they're maybe close to retirement and they're getting ready to do just travel, right? And they're and they're excited. And that's part of what they love. So this is just an opportunity to be like, yeah, this is, you know, if you can get out there and spend some time, I mean, get a week, right? Two weeks off and just travel around the area. It sounds like, I mean, it sounds like probably in your area, you could spend a week or two. Oh, at least. I mean, the Wind River Range alone, if you're, you know, if you're physically able, you could spend an entire summer kind of poking around and fishing and hiking and, and never have to go to the same place twice. Yeah. We did an episode recently with uh, somebody who was talking about ultralight hiking. And that's one of the challenges for some people is getting, thinking about going to the backcountry, like think of the 60 pound backpack sort of thing. But he was talking about, he has a seven day trip. He'll have a 12 pound backpack. Wow. Yeah. And he went into like food and everything and how he does it. And I didn't realize because I've been out of that loop for a little bit, mm-hmm. but I'm thinking, okay, now this is doable. Like the kids, I can give them a 12 pound backpack with all their stuff in it. And they can handle that. Right. You know what I mean? So that I can see that for you guys too. I mean, or if we came up there, like, or anybody, you could just hike around, right? You can get out in the Wind River Range and do some hiking and put your rod in and jump into some little creek flowing in somewhere. Absolutely. And I tell people all the time as well, like, the opportunities for our youth on, on the Wind River Reservation to create small businesses that they could run without a lot of like need for capital and labor are amazing. I was in Lander, which is in Fremont County. This was two summers ago. I was buying a mountain bike for my youngest son. And on the counter, there was this brochure of this guy who started this company in Lander. His business is basically a shuttle service for mountain bikers. Oh, nice. So all around the Lander area, he's got a couple of these big 15 passenger vans with big bike racks on them. In the morning, he picks people up at their hotels or at their Airbnbs, oh, shows them the routes, takes them, drops them off, has a way to keep connected with them throughout the day if they have anything go wrong so he can come and help them out if they get a flat tire or they have a fall or something. But essentially, he's created this business for himself where he's literally just a shuttle service for these mountain bikers to get to and from. <laughs> we have so many areas on the reservation where you could do something like that. Now, it would take a little time and it take a little effort and it would take some capital up front to get it started, but not a lot. You're not talking about a, you know, a need for half a million dollars. Yeah. So, you know, a couple of vans and some bike racks and some, some training and some help with basic accounting and cash flow, you know, knowledge, you could have somebody up and running and, and have a little seasonal business. Right. Are there the opportunities there when you think of the kids? Is that the business, like teaching the business end of things and what they can do? Is that is that what you look at? I do look at that. And I, I think that there is a, my dad had served on this board of an organization called, it was the Wind River Economic Development Board. And that's what they had was some seed money from, I think it was from the USDA to help people start small businesses, but it wasn't just giving them a bunch of cash. They had to go through a couple of weeks training of learning, you know, cash flow, employment taxes, basically the basics you need to start a business. But opportunities like that are out there. We just got to have people that are interested and pursue them. And the way you get a kid interested in mountain biking is you teach them how to ride a mountain bike when they're a little kid, just like you teach somebody how to fly fish when they're a little kid. Mm-hmm. And it's not for everybody, but you know, 
somebody's going to come along that wants to do it. And there's a great opportunity for them to do something right there at home. That's perfect. What's your, um, you know, business, I can't miss a business tip. So if you're thinking about, you've got this business, it sounds like a successful business. If somebody's listening and they want to start a business now or later, do you have one tip you'd tell them like how you've found success here? I think there's, you know, I don't know if there's any one thing. I think it's important to, to think about doing something that you absolutely love. So the reason I say that is, I mean, I have all this education and training. Like I said, I have a PhD in clinical psychology, and I like that work. Make no mistake, there's nothing wrong with that. I don't dislike it at all. But the work I do with running my business and feeling like I'm doing something that is good for our community, you know, focusing on water and conservation and hopefully protection of these resources, I love that stuff. So that's a big difference. That says. Do you love the business side of it? Like all that, like digging into the business stuff? Well, I don't love, <laughs> I don't love that stuff. Right. Like the marketing, right? You got all that stuff. I don't love all that stuff. I do love the core mission of trying to deliver this good product and, and have it become a success. Yeah. But I do love the fact that we're trying to do something that is focused on preserving these resources for the next generation. Yeah. And I like the fact that it's worked. You know, I, I like the fact that it's economically sustainable for sure. So I would say the thing is the most important business tip I would have to somebody is like, look at whether or not if you want to create a business, is it something that you love to do? Like I love to fish and I love being outside. Those are absolutely key to who I am. And so I also, my father passed away a little over a year ago oh, wow. and I grew up on our, our ranch in, in Crowhart on the reservation. And when I was a kid, I couldn't wait to get away from the ranch, right? When I was 18, I was ready to go to college. I was like, this is the last thing in the world I want to do. I want out of here. I wanted <laughs> to be where all the cool people were, right? Mm -hmm. And now I can't wait to get back to the ranch. So I spent the summer working at the ranch as well and, and trying to keep things going that my dad had done all these years. And and I love it. But I, I also know in the future, I want to take that in a different direction. Uh, my dad and I talked about transitioning to Buffalo uh, away from cattle. Oh, yeah. At some point, I want to do that. Sure. That'd be amazing. So again, I guess I would tell folks, think about what you do and what you want to do. And, and do you love it? Do you feel passionate about it? Yeah. Because that will drive you. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean the business is going to be a success, but but it means that if you love what you do, then it's a, just a good place to start. Yeah. It's a good starting point because that's the reason that works so well. That's good advice is that, you know, there is times when it's a grind, mm -hmm. you know, and you can get through those times when it's a grind because you love it and you've got this focus and you're like, you know what, even though it's hard, I'm loving it. Well, one last one here as we take it out, you hear a lot of this. I've interviewed, you know, like hundreds of people here. And a lot of times in the fly fishing space, you hear these people like, is there an end in sight, right? Do you plan on retiring? But a lot of times you hear people just talking about like, hey, I'm going to do this until I drop. I love doing this. Are you more on that end or do you see like you're going to be transferring this over and, and retiring and taking a break from eventually? I certainly don't see an, an end in sight in the way that, that one would think like, at what point will you step away and retire? I think for me, I would like to do something similar to what Yvonne did with his company. I mean, oh, right. you know, look, my company is nothing compared to Patagonia, right? Yeah. We're this little tiny sliver of a speck. But I would love to have something in place that would say this resource is so important that it needs to be sustained and protected for the, for the next generation. And for the benefit of, you know, whether it's the fish or the water or the people of the Wind River Reservation. That's my thought on that, that issue. Yeah. 
whether or not I, you know, I'm 55 years old, will I still be doing this in another 30 years? Hopefully not. I mean, uh, hopefully at some point I'll have some time to, you know, not be grinding it out. But at the same time, I, I don't know what else I would do because I absolutely love this. Yeah, that's uh, perfect. I think we'll leave it there. I think you said it before, do what you love, you know, and I think that why would you stop doing what you love? You know, I kind of see the same thing about any of this stuff is that, I mean, retirement doesn't sound like that much fun. You know, if you're really loving what, you know, your job, why not just keep doing it and, you know, keep it going? Well, and I think things can change for you over time. Like there was a time where I thought I would never not guide fishing trips. Oh, right. Right. And now I don't guide at all. You don't guide. Yeah. No, I, I don't guide. But I still am involved in every aspect of my business because I just realized at some point guiding, at least in my opinion, and people can disagree with this, but in my opinion, guiding is a young man's game. Yeah, it is. At some point, your shoulders and your back just start getting tired. And I also realized growing my business, if I was guiding all the time, was a limiting factor. Yep. It's your time. And I was, I wasn't going to have time to go into other things and I wanted to have a family. And, you know, so I just thought at some point I'm not going to guide anymore and that that's okay. I, I finally got to a point where I was okay with that. That's great. I see this just like exactly, anybody can see it, but like with the podcast, you know, I mean, this is just a little podcast or whatever, but, um, you know, I mean, the editing, you know, is something I really loved. I definitely love the editing, but I passed that on, you know, last year. And, uh, and it's been important, right? Because you can't mm-hmm. grow if your time is valuable, so you can't do everything. This is cool. Well, Darren, I appreciate you spending the time today and uh, taking us there. If anybody has questions or want to connect, we'll send them out to uh, windrivercanyon.com. And uh, yeah, I just want to thank you for all the good work you're doing, and we'll look forward to keeping in touch and seeing, the, you know, following the journey, moving ahead. Absolutely. Thank you, Dave. I really appreciate it. I, I enjoyed this thoroughly. So there you go. Another big episode in the books, wetflyswing.com slash 390-390. We'll get you over to those show notes where you can check out some more information and keep this uh, podcast going strong. Like I said, if you get a chance, please share it out if you enjoyed this episode. Would love, love that. That would be a huge help for this podcast and for everybody who's part of this community here. Quick listener shout out, Zach Pierce on Instagram gave us a big, nice story shout out. He gave us his top five podcast episodes, and we were on top of that list right above the big guy, Orvis. So appreciate that, Zach. Definitely appreciate you for doing that, and I'm going to be hooking you up with some episode content. So I'm going to be following up with you on that, and stay tuned. We're going to be heading out to Maine. We might even get out that way and do some trips. We'll see how it goes this year with everything. But thanks again, Zach. If you want to get a shout-out on this episode anytime, you can send me a DM, or like Zach did even better, Get out there and give us a story or a reel or some sort of a post out there. That would be great. But at a minimum, just send me a DM on Instagram or an email, Dave at wetflyswing.com. All right, what do we got going here? want to take a quick look here as we are approaching, really approaching the end of the year now. In a couple days, we got a Atlantic Salmon episode coming out. Stuart Foxel is going to dig into some good stuff, talking about Atlantic Salmon and Steelhead. And then next week, we are getting into the 50 greatest fishing locations on the planet. Uh, and then we're getting into some other cool stuff. So we got a, we got a bunch of stuff as we move in towards the end of this year. And uh, I'm actually going to be taking off a little bit of time for a couple of weeks. But the podcast is going to keep going strong. We are not going to miss a beat, although I'm going to be off for a couple of weeks. We got uh, uh, Dom and the crew and everybody is going to be uh, leading this. Thea, I think, actually is actually editing this one as we're speaking. So Thea, in advance, thank you for doing that. 
we got a good little team here. So if you get a chance, definitely uh, give a shout out anytime, Dave at Wet Fly Swing, and I will catch you uh, in the new year uh, in person. I hope to maybe get with you on one of these trips. We've got some big trips coming up. We're doing, I think our next big giveaway is going to be the uh, the Euro School, which I haven't, uh, this might be the first time we're announcing that we're doing a Euro School a big trip coming up in uh, next year. So we're going to do a big a big event there and do some cool stuff around that. So if you have any thoughts, if you've been interested in checking out and getting your game, maybe you haven't even tried it that much like me, Euronymphing, we're going to be doing it big. We're going, we're going strong all year, 2023 giveaways, trips, and everything else. All right, thanks for showing up today. Thanks for your support. And I will look forward to catching you on the water or online. And I hope you have a good afternoon, a good evening, or a good morning, wherever you are in the world. And I appreciate you for uh, joining us. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.